0: With our return to the moon hopefully coming in the next few years, and with the plans of humans staying outside low-Earth orbit for long periods of time, space medicine is going to become extremely important.
1: So, this week, we're talking to Dr. Vanessa Farsadaki preeminent thought leader towards advancing the discipline of space medicine
0: if you have any feedback about what we do we'd love to hear from you you can do this via our social media pages at space and things one on twitter and at space and things podcast on instagram and facebook or via the contact form on our website
1: and please hit the share button to help us out but right now enjoy episode 114 of the space and things podcast
0: And
1: things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney, and I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 114 of the Space and Things podcast. How are you doing, Emily?
0: I'm doing great, doing good. I just came back from Houston, so had a great weekend. And how about you?
1: All is good. I saw that you were a Mission Control. Is that right?
0: Yeah, it was. That was unbelievable. It, it didn't seem real. It seemed like a movie or something because um, it's real. Obviously, I don't want to give the the conspiracy people any <laughs> fuel, but it doesn't look real. It does look like for all mankind. So it was really <laughs> cool.
1: Excellent. Excellent. Did you manage to watch the Falcon Heavy launch this morning?
0: I'm real embarrassed to admit this. I, missed, I just missed it. Uh, I was uh, still waking up and and feeding my cats and stuff like that. I couldn't have seen it from where I'm at because there was a lot of fog this morning on both sides of the coast. It was real foggy where I was at too. So um I don't think I would have seen it regardless, but yeah, I I completely missed it and I'm embarrassed to say that, but that's probably <laughs> why it went off on time. So
1: <laughs> the old Emily Jinx.
0: Yeah, it probably went off cuz I was not viewing it. So yeah. yeah. Glad it went off. That's that's pretty cool it went off seemingly on time which is yeah. really cool
1: yeah it was interesting watching it with all the fog even on the live stream i imagine though there was plenty of people who made the journey over there or photographers who had set their cameras yeah. up who were cursing about the fact they didn't get to see anything
0: yeah <laughs> i know i saw the press site a few pictures from that i was like oh man that stinks they all got up and went over there at an early time and there's like no visibility no Visibility. That, that sucks they would have heard like, the sonic oh, boom,
1: though that would have been cool
0: yeah, that that's, a, that's cool. I mean, at least they would have gotten that. They would have gotten something out of it. They just couldn't see it.
1: Yeah. Right. Space medicine is this week's subject. And to talk us through what it means now and what it might mean in the future, we've got one of the biggest minds in the business on the podcast, Dr. Vanessa Farsadaki possibly the most intelligent person I've ever spoke to. She's got more letters after her name than I've got hairs on my head.
0: That's right. Dr. V, as she is known colloquially, is a medical doctor of Greek descent, but is a citizen of the United States. As Dave said, she has many degrees in biology, genetics, astronomy, astrophysics, and business leadership. She has authored and co-authored many articles advocating for advancements in her field, and her knowledge about radiation exposure and protection have made her a sought after advisor on high end programs of note. She's also fluent in eighteen languages. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my goodness! I I, I don't know if I, I don't think I'm even fluent in English. At oh, this well, point. I was
1: about to say anyone listen to this knows that you and I struggle with English most days. So. Yeah, I
0: struggle with English, so that is incredible,
1: isn't it, Just?
0: Yes. This interview was recorded a few weeks back, and unfortunately, I was unavailable to be a part of it.
1: But, Emily, you did provide me with a number of questions to ask, so I consider it still very much a team effort. So, let's listen to this interview. Roger, clear of this tower. I got a picture program, and this is really gone. Roger, Pete. Welcome, Dr. V. Thank you so much for joining us on Space and Things. Let's get started. What got you into space medicine and have you always had an interest in space, perhaps all the way back to your childhood?
2: Well, isn't it a classic? Um, Yes. (laughs) Um, Well, being of Greek origin, um, I remember being a child and uh, sleeping outside during summer nights, looking up to the stars and dreaming and Um, exploring navigation through the stars uh, because we're close to the sea as well. So yes, ever since I can remember myself, it has all been about the sky. Um, Getting there is something that was kind of discovered along the way, I guess. (laughs) But yes, the stars have been there since the very, very beginning.
1: Of course. So, of course, that's how space is there. How did the medicine come into it? Obviously, you went to medical school, but how do you go from someone who likes looking at the stars to being a specialist in space medicine?
2: Well, to be honest with you, Dave, I had aimed to become a doctor, a medical doctor that is, since uh, my my grades were quite good with uh, anything science and anything math and anything Languages and anything, really pretty much everything was uh, okay. I was struggling at gym, to be honest, (laughs) (laughs) but that's a whole other level. (laughs) So at some point around the age of 15, I decided to go into medical school. That's a whole story by itself of how I ended up there because that was a really big struggle and a lot of obstacles along the way for that too. But after I was done, I I always knew that I wanted to do something with space. If I hadn't gone into medical school, it would have been uh, something like theoretical physics, cosmology, something like that. But at the end of medical school that I realized after working quite a bit with COVID, I realized that Clinical work was not what I was interested in, so I wanted to combine my knowledge of medicine with my passion of space, and I realized that there's a very big gap in space medicine, and what I had initially thought was space medicine actually doesn't exist right now. So decided to take a journey to go along the way towards something uh, to create it basically, and. uh, that's where you find me right now.
1: (laughs) Okay, so there's an obvious follow-up there. What did you think space (laughs) medicine was and what actually is it currently?
2: Well, um, good question. I I did an experiment about that back in May. I went to um, the asthma conference, which is the Aerospace Medical Association uh conference where you bring lots of flight surgeons mainly together a bunch of chief medical officers of big Mm -hmm. private companies etc together um to talk about space medicine and i did an experiment i went around and asked each one of them two questions very simple questions what is space medicine to you and do you think that what your definition is covers the future missions and what the future requires of us well i asked 20 people um i got 50 different definitions
1: yeah. and
2: <laughs> none of them really overlapped uh, other than the basics that it's medicine and it's space and it's people and <laughs> no it didn't really reflect what we will need in the future my view of space medicine has to do with asking the basic question of what is space and what is medicine because think about it Dave when you talk about space you're going to need a different set of medicine if you're on the surface of Mars and a different set of medicine if you're on surface of the moon and a different set of medicine if you're in a free-floating space settlement right yeah um, i mean that education and that workforce that will become space doctors will also need to specialize on the planetary body or uh, the area of space we're working from so that's one aspect and then of course within medicine there should be subspecializations uh, that will adapt for example Surgery on Earth, like let's take general surgery, for example, on Earth has nothing to do with general surgery in a free floating space settlement. Just because think about the training of the robots that we're going to be using. Robotic surgery on Earth requires a set of skills that are quite admirable to, to acquire the set of skills accordingly you know, in space will be completely different and will also need quite a bit of training with that so what i'm trying to tell you dave is that what we're doing right now is pretty much stuck in the era of apollo and before uh, because even the specialization of medicine that deals with astronauts it's literally called flight surgery why is it called flight surgery because it dates back from the 30s when doctors were dealing with pilots those very first pilots and yet we haven't evolved from that not even from that definition and that term so truth is that we need to really evolve and start building something new because we're not ready what, for what's coming as it is right now
1: yeah, that's really interesting, actually. It's actually a lot bigger than you think, isn't it? Because it's not just taking what we know about medicine on Earth and transferring it. It's complete different skill sets, isn't it? Depending on where you are, exactly, on what body or not on a body or whatever it is. It's, it's crazy, isn't it? I not, I've not even thought of it in those terms.
2: It's not just that, Dave. It also has to do with every single other job pretty much in a few years ten, 10 years down the line we're going to be asking a little bit more maybe we're going to be asking hey what's he doing oh i'm a hairdresser great um earth or space
1: yeah uh, space
2: oh great and <laughs> which part of space <laughs> because that reflects on what kind of education you got right
1: absolutely um,
2: how it, it, it's a different set of skills think about dentists think about musicians how music would propagate and what music would be interesting culturally on a space settlement would be so much more different from uh, what is interesting on earth and of course then would go into astrosociology uh, which would have to do with entire society mentalities and cultures but this is a whole other <laughs> topic i guess
1: but equally very fascinating absolutely I imagine that most people listening to this podcast, like me, let's go take it to that Apollo era that, that you mentioned earlier. Uh, most of us have the understanding that there is a thing called space sickness. Mm-hmm. and that can affect anyone regardless of your background and training. It just seems to randomly affect various people. How much do we actually know about this now? Because back then it was it was completely new. No one knew what it was, what, what was causing it. 50 years on, have we learned that much about this with the 700 people or so that have gone into space? where Where are we with that? <laughs> well,
2: that's an interesting question. So just to to understand it a little better it would be like comparing it to the kind of sea C- sickness one might get uh well on about that being said what do we know from seasickness? C- we know that some people get it and some people don't right and it also we have observed that it tends to be genetic if um your parents have had it there are high chances that you might have it too Oh. I might skip a generation, like this is not written in stone, but there do seem to be some trend. So similarly, we have seen with astronauts that some people get it, some astronauts get it, and some astronauts don't. Nowadays, NASA prefers the term adaptation sickness right? because it usually happens in those few first days. And it's usually the days that the, the body is trying to adapt to space, right? It might be dizziness, some headaches, some nausea. Rare occasions you might have vomiting, but it's usually just nausea. Very, very similar to what we know as seasickness. And, of course, there's also the aspect, which is different from seasickness, of uh, disorientation and losing where up and down is, of course, because as you're free-floating there, you, you don't know where up and down is. Yeah. Um, so so you, you have this feeling of being lost. The more time you spend on the ISS, for example, which is uh, where we have observed it mostly nowadays due to do sample size, of course, the more it tends to go away after a while. So some people have it, some people don't. It occurs spontaneously. It leaves spontaneously. You might uh, get some Dramamine or like seasickness medication, right? Same same way to treat it, just to try to calm your body down and your psychology down. That it's okay, you're here, you're home, It's nothing's going to happen to you. Concentrate for the psychological part and then the physiological just spontaneously goes away after a few days. That's all we know though.
1: So a lot to be learnt there, I guess. And and this is potentially a huge question. But what what do you consider the most important findings we've had in space medicine so far? Is is there anything other than space adaptation sickness that happens to the human body that we should be aware of, perhaps?
2: Oh my, that is a huge question, Dave.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I did That's say quite so. <laughs>
2: So during my postdoc, I worked on something that I find quite interesting. I did radiation protection uh, of astronauts from a genetic perspective. And let me explain to you what I mean. As most listeners might know, we are very much protected on Earth, right? We have an atmosphere. We have a magnetosphere, meaning that our planet is a magnet. And therefore, we are protected from whatever harmful radiation might be coming from out there. Now, that being said, when we leave that protection, we're no longer protected, therefore Hmm. we're exposed to all sorts of harmful things. And it turns out after astronauts, from the very small sample that we've had up to now, after astronauts come back, it turns out that a few years later, they might develop uh, some cancers or they might end up having some mutations within their dna that lead to to cancers or any uh, radiation sicknesses that might be more chronic rather than acute because the acute ones we see them a lot faster and uh, it's usually not related to space so in space we usually tend to see the chronic things the ones that take time so they're in risk of two things, cancers and getting such mutations that their progeny, therefore children, uh, might end up having problems um, because they transfer their DNA to their children. Now, two thirds of astronauts from the sample that we have come back and have these kinds of problems. However, there's one third that come back and don't have any kind of problem of sort. So we realized well we asked ourselves why is that first of all and turns out intrinsically all the way from the bacterial ancestor we still have some uh, genes in us that if they're expressed enough act as shields to radiation wow. and we therefore get protected and therefore our dna gets protected so ideally and this is still science fiction but just to put it into perspective in a few years ideally a couple of weeks before anybody would fly up um would take a pill overexpress those proteins or similarly underexpress some others that make us more prone to radiation exposure get us protected then fly up and nothing happens to us so I think that's, uh, it, this is one of the areas that um, NASA is working on quite a bit right now. So it's really fascinating, and I'm very proud to have been part of that project.
1: That's crazy. That is so crazy, because we hear a lot about the biggest issue with going to Mars is radiation, a potential mm-hmm. radiation for humans in the journey, and then when we're there, because we, it's a long period away from the, the protection. So
2: actually, if I, I were to add to this, I think that the biggest issue would be boredom.
1: Yeah, well. <laughs> I think the mental health. Good point. I
2: think that mental health will be um, a huge issue that we don't bring up enough. And, uh, uh, you know, you asked about what kind of things do we know in the past 50 years? Well, we didn't start keeping a track record of how people. Astronauts felt until 1991. Believe wow. it or not, I mean, those people up in Mercury program, and uh, they they never thought of asking them, "Hey, man, how did it feel up there in such an enclosed <laughs> space for that long?" Um, and uh, we only started keeping mental health track records since the 90s. So, you know, there's there's a lot of issues with traveling in space. A lot of issues. Humans are made for the surface of the earth not for traveling out there. Uh, It's going to take us generations and generations to evolve that bit of our DNA to adapt into something new. So we will need some pharmacological supply to help ourselves to adapt to space, basically.
1: Yeah, it's really weird because all all, all of the things I'd thought of to help with the radiation part of that were... The materials used for the spaceships. I never thought that there could be a a medical, you know, as you say, genetic thing that could help us to to combat that problem. One of many problems that that you've outlined. Yeah, the the mental health thing is really interesting as well, isn't it? No, you're right. It doesn't get talked about. You know, it doesn't get talked about anywhere near enough.
2: True, true, and it's uh, it's one of the projects that I'm currently working on, and thank goodness it's getting talked about more and more because it is important but another project on the other side to eliminate the boredom uh, especially if we want to be able to travel deep space um, solar system and beyond solar system eventually Uh, another project i'm working on is uh, human hibernation uh, where you wouldn't have to put basically humans into a deep sleep like Similarly to medically induced comas, which happen right now uh, when we need to in medical center settings, but for an extended period of time. So there's two sides to it, right? Either put them to sleep and make sure they wake up at, when they reach the destination after hundreds of years, or make sure that we talk to the engineers to make the spaceship stimulating enough us to not lose our mental health a human needs social interactions needs mentally challenging environments uh, and needs to be problem uh, solving Um, if we stop solving problems we'll lose this evolutionary part of our brain that has to do with thinking basically um and, and that's dangerous because we won't be we won't be humans anymore, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So this hibernation thing this is this is really blowing my mind now. <laughs> I mean, I've seen this in sci-fi. I mean, I I know that people have talked about this. I had no idea that that people were actually working on this.
2: Absolutely.
1: Is this something that that is near some kind of test phase on on this planet, or, or are we still a few years off?
2: Not quite. We're, we're a few years off. Uh, however, <laughs> you know, especially in space, but regardless of the domain, when you see money getting invested into an area, you know that it's moving forward. And uh, money is getting invested into this. So it means we're we're getting there. <laughs> That's <laughs> we'll crazy. <get> there soon. <laughs> yes.
1: That is crazy. I, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change tack a little bit. The, the mental health thing has made sure. me think uh, about Scott Kelly's book, Endurance. Uh, Scott <laughs> Kelly, the guy who spent nearly a year in space, he's written a great book about what it was like to be in space for a year. And he he talks about some of the problems with that. It uh, doesn't go as far as talking about mental health per se, but he talks about his feelings and, and how it felt and the boredom and, and, and some of those things. The other thing he talks about a hell of a lot is CO2, yeah. the carbon dioxide side problems yeah. that, that he, he thinks were grossly overlooked on the ground, that they weren't listening to the astronauts' experiences saying, mm-hmm. hey, I'm getting these headaches, I'm getting these lack of focus in the vision, and it's because of the, the CO2 is too high. The CO2. Is that something which the medical profession are helping NASA with to understand, to to improve, or uh, a NASA kind of on their own path with those kind of things?
2: Okay, so just to explain a little bit for the listeners uh, what it is that the issue is on the ISS, we know that here on Earth there are winds, right? We have an atmosphere, things move around, uh, there's a certain composition of the air, Uh, which we as humans have evolved with and uh, breathed very finely with. And on a hot day in a stuffed room, you can always open a window and some fresh air comes in, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Now, there are a few differences with that statement with the ISS. First of all, there's no fresh air for you to open a window. You can't open a window. Second of all, you need to create an artificial atmosphere inside so that we don't end up having to wear those big suits with the oxygen tanks and everything attached to them. That being said, as the circulation of air isn't as effective all the time, there are some areas of the ISS inside that get um, those pockets of CO2, as we call them. So there are some areas which we don't know which ones might get a little bit of a concentrated CO2. And while an astronaut might be working in the area, will not realize that, oh, I'm breathing a higher percentage of CO2 than I should have. And we realize that from the symptoms of, again, dizziness, a big headache. If They keep on working and don't stop, which they have the directive now to stop. Well, if they realize this, they have to stop. But if they don't, they will start having trouble breathing. You know, it gets gets really serious. So it's true that, Dave, we have a very big issue with this, the agency, but especially in the space sector, regardless of the company. There are a lot of teams that, overlap in their work and they don't talk to each other right so if we had the engineers talking to the medical office uh, we would have overcome this a long long time ago and similar this is just one example of the issues that we're having at the iss right Uh, there are several of them out there i think it's an issue of communication rather lack of If we were to be better communicating because we don't have that similar background, but working on the same thing, uh, we would have solved things like that. So it's not an issue of the agency refusing to uh, deal with it. On the contrary, they're very much aware of it. I would place it as a lack of communication between teams because this is. A very heavily engineering issue, uh, but has physiological impacts. Both teams should be talking to each other, basically. Uh, so that's my point of view. And that's where what we we're talking about earlier, the new revolutionary space medicine should come in because ideally the the new workforce should have actually a combination of five different areas of knowledge engineering, medicine biology, business, and anything that would have to do with uh, the psychological parts. This way, we would be able to have a fully comprehensive view of um, how to make space safe for humans, basically, for the human body. And issues like that wouldn't come
1: up. What opportunities for space medicine are provided as space becomes more accessible to all kinds of people, you know, genders different ethnic groups. As we know, the early space age was pretty much just white men. And now we're seeing a a lot more diverse crews and types of people that are going to space. Does this open up any opportunities within uh, medicine in space or a greater understanding, perhaps, of of how how it works?
2: The sector of space medicine, as I'm telling you, is so... um, selective right now both for its patients as it only has to be astronauts uh, not common people um, which doesn't reflect the future right and on the other hand it's also very uh, selective in the sense of who who does it because as i told you there's sort of a lot of groups that are Convinced they're the only ones doing space medicine, like yeah. the flight surgeons think they're the only ones doing space medicine, and the PhD researchers they're the only ones who deal with space medicine, and then the engineers that have to do with human factors think they're the only ones who actually solve the problems of space medicine, and those people don't talk to each other, so there 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 has to be some um, representation from all the groups, and opening of opportunities to to everybody that wants to get involved, and has the skill set to get involved. I do notice as well that there's the generation of the Apollo program and the shuttle program even more, who is the older generation of workforce within the space sector right now, within space medicine right now, that are still a little in their own ways of the past and especially space medicine needs to evolve uh, all other sectors uh, like engineering technology have been evolving by the second especially now with uh, the privatization and everything that's been happening on the private side however space medicine has really really got stuck in uh, the flat surgery idea of the 30s and then what it evolved to with the apollo program um so we definitely need uh, to open up to, to ideas and bring in more people and fresh people uh, with new skill sets that can speak both engineering and medicine and biology to actually start opening up the opportunities and also uh, the healing and prevention that we're going to need in space
1: absolutely so finally would you like to go to space to be either an experimental subject or to do some experiments
2: i'm actually going to be flying up in july of 2024 there we go (laughs) so i i can't say what i'll be doing quite yet but um it was one of my my long-term goals to be able to to perform scientific experiments in space and to to put both my body but also my knowledge to the test uh try to push those little boundaries do as much as i can and uh yeah maybe publish a few papers from what i get and uh see how that goes but oh yes absolutely uh somebody has to do it
1: (laughs) absolutely they really do And, and you'll be the first greek
2: That is correct. Let's see if uh, anybody else flies up.
1: (laughs) Beforehand, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's great news. I I wish you all the best on on those endeavors. And and thank you for for coming Mm -hmm. on and and spending some time and explaining some of these things to us. So much here has opened my mind to exactly where we're at and, and how far we've got to go to to really embrace space medicine and understand it and it not just be this this flight surgeon idea from the 1930s and, and move forward into what it actually needs to be now. Um, so thank you for opening, opening my eyes to that. I really, really appreciate that.
2: Of course, of course. Thank you. Um, I actually have a book that's coming out uh, in a few months that's just about that, uh, the revolution of space medicine and the needs that we're going to have. Uh, But yeah, stay tuned, I guess. We will (laughs) do, And and
1: and we will make sure that our listeners are very aware when that's out.
2: <laughs> thank you so much
1: thank you' hey, that's one of the better films, believe me. We've had a couple of cardiac arrests
0: down here too Pete There's There's time for that up here.
1: So as I said earlier, I think she's possibly the most intelligent person I've ever spoke to, but there were some genuine wow moments in that that I was not expecting. Wow number one, the radiation chat. so one in three astronauts who comes back from space doesn't have or, or while they're in space and when they come back doesn't have any issues with radiation Now they've found out the protein in the DNA that makes that person like that and they make an appeal for the other people to have so that radiation sickness won't be a thing in space I mean that's mental isn't it
0: I've been a rad worker before and it's always just like yep there's nothing you can do about it and um, it is weird because as she pointed out Some people have a different reaction to it than others. Some people aren't affected and some people are affected. And I guess in the past, nobody knew why it was just one of the one of those weird things. Like I've read stories, you know, in in books about people, you know, being exposed to like tons like contaminated and they were fine. They never had a problem. And meanwhile, other people got cancer. I mean, it's just just very random. For me, it's always been mystifying. And it looks like now, you know, we've we've gotten closer to solving that issue and that's great because now it's going to allow us to be a space bearing civilization because that's yeah. a big, that's a big problem in space flight, you know, especially as we're going, you know, to the moon and to Mars and, you know, potentially to other deep space areas, you know, you're going to have to worry about not only, you know, the radiation a planet might have itself, but also the sun has radiation. You know, what if the sun, let's go of one of those, uh, coronal ejections and, and hits you that's a lot I mean that that's yeah. yeah there's a whole book uh Jerry Brennan did on it which <laughs> underscores the horrors of that I, I always assume well we're never gonna figure out why
1: <laughs> we're never gonna figure that out I always thought that the only way they were gonna figure it out is is by building a structure around us yeah, to prevent it, rather than it being something within our DNA, which potentially could help. I I don't think. I mean, I still don't think I should have asked this question, but I still don't think it's going to solve all the radiation problems. But if you can get a big chunk of it solved by figuring out why some people don't have any problems with it in space, in 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 low Earth orbit, that's got to be extremely helpful. Yeah. The other big wow moment was. Obviously, lots of talk about mental health of astronauts, especially on these proposed long-duration missions where they could be floating around in deep space with nothing to look at. I mean, you just can't imagine that, can you? That The idea of just having nothing out your window other than black for months on end. I mean, that's pretty crazy. So the idea that they are actually, like in the movies, looking at human hibernation and that this could be a thing is mental
0: that would be really cool actually because i've often thought about that you know like yeah i would love to go to deep space but what the hell are you gonna do for like six months to a year you know i mean or longer like that's a long time there's plenty of space books to read yeah (laughs) there's plenty of books to read but it's like you know there's no sun you know you may not be getting direct sunlight and that actually is a big deal you know i mean it, it contributes to your mental health and it also contributes to you know how much vitamin D you get, which is also important. I've really thought about that. Like, man, how are they going to beat that issue of, because for me, I mean, I- I'm from Florida. I like to see the sun. That would drive me crazy probably. But yeah, the idea of being able to sleep through it. Yeah, sign me up. I love to take naps, so I'll do that. <laughs> sign me up. I'm, ar- I'm ready. Absolutely. So
1: it-, it was a fascinating interview. And I think this week and last week, we've had people on who are both talking about the future of space flight and their visions of how that's going to be based on what they're actually working on and what they actually believe is technically possible is nowhere where i thought it was going to be like it's so much further along than i thought we would we would be and isn't it just an incredible time to be alive and be into space flight
0: it is it is really cool i mean just With all the advances in in human spaceflight, as well as you know, I mean, obviously we got the Webb Telescope up there that's returning just insane images of of our universe and just a lot of crazy stuff. Uh, And when I say, I mean, when I say crazy, I mean crazy and like unimaginable stuff is happening right now. Stuff that you know, ten years ago was not a long time. I remember being out there for the first you know SpaceX cargo launches ten years ago, and that wasn't that long ago. And now it's like it feels like everything's starting to unfold. You know, it feels like the future is actually starting to happen, which is amazing. And it's about time. So, and I think people believe in it now. People are seeing it and they actually believe in a, in a hopeful future for our civilization.
1: All right. So I love that interview. And we've had a couple of really good ones recently. If you want to know more about Dr. V, Then she said to tell you that her Instagram is where she keeps most things up to date. That's astro underscore Vanessa on Instagram. Go and give her a follow and uh, make sure you're the first to know what she's up to. Uh, All other links will be in the show notes. And if you want to watch that interview in full, then head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash space and
0: things. Well, Dr. Curran, why were you the only crew member who didn't swear when the first docking attempt failed? I was too stupid to realize the serious implications of our promise. Since
1: we recorded last week, there have been five launches, one in Kazakhstan, two in China, one in California, and one in Florida, which was the first Falcon Heavy launch in three years, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast. Full details of these launches, their payloads, and any videos can be found in the show notes on our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com, or click the link in the description of this podcast. The SpaceX Falcon Heavy wasn't the only heavy rocket to launch this week, though, In China, the Long March 5B rocket was used to deliver the laboratory cabin modules into orbit, which are a major element of the Chinese Tiangong Space Station.
0: Last week, we spoke about a beautiful new image taken by JWST of the Pillars of Creation. Uh, That image was taken by the telescope's near-infrared camera, but they've now published another photo of the pillars taken by the Mid-Infrared Instruments. In this new version, the dust clouds appear to have a blue tinge in front of a spooky red background. A perfect Halloween image. (laughs) Uh, These two images are just so beautiful, but so different with the two instruments showing off their unique features. Uh, European Space Agency officials wrote the following about the latest photo taken by the mid-infrared instruments. Thousands of stars that exist in the region disappear from view, and seemingly endless layers of gas and dust become the centerpiece. It's this dust which is an essential ingredient for star formation. That is incredible.
1: Yeah, well, I might need to be a bit careful because I've been cleaning my old flat <laughs> and the dust behind the sofa was quite overwhelming. So hopefully I'm not I'm not building my own star system behind my old sofa. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, we are all made of stars <laughs> yeah. as yeah, as old Carl would have said.
1: Anyway, Anyway, yeah, talking of the European Space Agency, their Solar Orbiter spacecraft has taken the highest resolution video ever of the upper layer of the sun's atmosphere, which is also known as the corona. It used the Orbiter's extreme ultraviolet imager, and it seems surprisingly calm given the recent solar activity that's been experienced. The orbiter was 27 million miles from the sun's surface when it took the video, which is, of course, 43 million (laughs) kilometers. And each pixel (laughs) covers an area of 65 miles wide, which means 17 Earths could fit across the image. This is a really stunning video, which you really should check out if you haven't seen it.
0: October was a good month for amazing imagery from space. The Lucy spacecraft recently performed a flyby of the Earth as part of its journey to the Trojan asteroids, and it sent back some incredible photos. On October 13th, it took a photo of the Earth and the Moon from a distance of about 890,000 miles, or 1.4 million kilometers, in Dave's language. Uh, You really get to appreciate the distance from the Earth to the Moon in this shot. It's a lot different from the drawing on the blackboard drawn by Ed Harris while he was portraying Gene Krantz in Apollo 13. Uh, it's really quite amazing to see how small everything really is. Uh, the spacecraft also used the flyby to test out its long range reconnaissance imager by taking some stunning close ups of the moon. The science team has done a great job of creating some photo mosaics from these images that show huge sections of the moon to the resolution of 8.8 8 miles per pixel. That's really awesome. Again, You really should check out all of these images. Dave will either upload the images or share the links within our show notes.
1: Yes, I will. And while we're talking about amazing space photographs, I'd like to mention this following story. NASA's Voyager project obviously has taken many iconic photos of our solar system before each of the spacecraft moved out into interstellar space. And this week, the chief scientist of that mission, Dr. Ed Stone, has finally retired after working on the project For 50 years! In a NASA statement, Dr. Stone has said, It has been an honour and a joy to serve as the Voyager Project Scientist for 50 years. The spacecraft has succeeded beyond expectation, and I have cherished the opportunity to work with so many talented and dedicated people on this mission. It has been a remarkable journey, and I'm thankful to everyone around the world who has followed Voyager and joined us on this adventure. Enjoy your retirement, Dr. Stone.
0: That's bittersweet because it's like you're happy he retired, but at the same time, it's sort of like the end of an era, you know?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah,
0: it's sort of like that stinks. I, I love that guy. Sometime in the next week, the Joint Polar Satellite System will be launching from Vandenberg, and it's the third of fifth polar orbiting satellites, which will help scientists predict extreme weather and to better understand how these events affect our planet. The first of these satellites was launched in 2011, the second in 2017 and the final two are planned for 2027 and 2032, respectively. It will become quite the comprehensive imaging system with each satellite orbiting the Earth 14 times a day. The latest of these satellites will be able to observe every place on the Earth at least twice a day. Uh, The idea of these satellites is to help to understand the butterfly effect of one extreme bit of weather on the other part of the world, on another part of the world, I should say. Uh, For example, Hurricane Ian, which recently wreaked havoc on parts of Florida, uh, initially began as a tropical atmospheric wave off the coast of West Africa. And trust me, uh, we in Florida were watching that the whole time. I mean, when it was a wave in Africa, we were like, is that coming? And we just, we saw it. Oh my God, it was crazy.
1: I don't know if it's good to know you've got this scary thing coming your way, but...
0: (laughs) It's good to know so you can get out. I mean, that's... I suppose,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: Like, we got out a couple days before just to get... And thankfully, we didn't get a direct hit. We still got the storm, but we got out early enough. So, in case, you know, that we got flooded, we would be okay. You know, we yeah. would be safe. So, it is a good thing.
1: Yeah. 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 And finally, I'd like to bring a new film to your attention Good Night, Opie will be out on Prime Video on November 23rd, and it's also getting a few screenings in cinemas as well. For example, there is one in London this Friday, which annoyingly I can't make. Anyway, it's the story of the Opportunity Mars rover, and the trailer got me quite excited. Opportunity was supposed to last for just 90 days, but ended up lasting for 15 years, and I'm sure many of us remember the final message from that rover. NASA really did a great job of connecting people with this mission and I actually think this movie might be quite emotional. The trailer is of course in the show notes. The only
2: thing I, wish is I have more. This is the experience I've
0: that's it for this week we hope you enjoyed our podcast we're just a month away from when dave and i will finally meet in person for the first time which is crazy we've known each other yeah. for years so it should be an exciting few weeks uh we've got to figure out exactly what we're going to do when we're at the cosmosphere together but also we hope to see some of you at the big event on december 2nd so please let us know if you're going to be there
1: yeah it's going to be great i'm ridiculously excited. Even the weak pound hasn't taken away my (laughs) excitement. Anyway, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting what we do. Until next time, don't forget that in space, no one can hear you stream. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.